The Real Investment Show. So the uh, congressional baseball game returns tonight. I think you should be in Washington raising the debt ceiling. <laughs> Actually, here's here's what we should do. We should like all call in today to our congressman, and if the Republicans win the congressional baseball game tonight, you raise the debt ceiling without the three and a half trillion dollar spending bill. Let's put it on the line, right? If the Democrats win, you get to raise the debt ceiling and pass your three point five trillion dollar spending bill. Game on. Yeah, let's 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 put it to work here, and uh, you know. It's just the future of the country. Who cares, right? I mean, you know, what's a, what's a little bet between friends? <laughs> so uh, joining me today, of course, Danny Ratliff, uh, CFP, and Tom Allen, who is our consultant for retirement planning and retirement plans. And a uh, few things that are going on. You know, one thing that we've talked about before in the economy, of course, not just the issue of, you know, raising debt and more debt and more spending and these type of things, is it's the great resignation. Um, we're seeing a record number of people um, retiring, leaving the workforce. And while that sounds like everybody's just opting out, really the question is, is they're being asked to leave very politely. <laughs> it's like, hey, please, please feel free to retire, um, Danny. I'm, you know, I'm waiting for my forced resignation. So just, you're free to ask me to retire any day now. As, as hey, you keep on waiting. <laughs> that financial plan is still not there, Lance. We're working on it, okay? Got it. You'll have it ready any day now. So. Any day. And, and don't worry. You know, if they don't raise the debt ceiling, if they, if, or if they do and continue to raise taxes, it's just going to take even longer. No, I know. That's just, that's just the issue. Uh, but it is, it is kind of an interesting situation. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people moving into retirement now. And then, of course, you know, potential changes to tax laws. And now, uh, Tom, they're actually even trying to make changes to retirement plans. They are indeed. So I, I think one of the big things that kind of the big thing when we're when you were talking about raising the debt ceiling is Congress is trying to be very active in getting more involved in people's lives. And some of that is also going to be retirement plans and increasing access. And so the big thing that's been put on a Capitol Hill recently is the Portable Retirement and Investment Account Act of 2021. Basically, what they're doing is they're creating a public option for employees in America to get access to saving for retirement. Uh, Lance, I think the very interesting thing about this, though, is that what they're offering isn't necessarily going to move the needle in getting people ready for retirement. So another government program that's not necessarily going to pay dividends and solve the problem. So. Well, this this is the same thing that Obama did when he was in office. He tried to launch this uh, new version of an IRA and yep. and you know try to get people to say, look, the, the biggest problem with people is that they don't have any extra income to save. I'm actually writing a report on this now, but I mean, every year we go through this kind of analysis, the National Bureau of Retirement uh, Institute and all these other research organizations, they do the surveys. And it's interesting, we were talking about this uh, just the other day uh, on the show, is that, you know, Fidelity just reported that there's now 469,000 millionaires with retirement accounts. And that sounds awesome, right, Danny? I mean, 469,000 people at Fidelity with IRAs and 401ks have a million dollars in their account. You know what that is, a percentage of the total? Want to take a guess? What? Uh, I'm going to go with, it's 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 under 5%. How about, I'm going to go with actually how, under. How about one? Yeah, there we go. It's, but again, this is the wealth gap, right? It's actually technically is one point six percent, but if you actually pulled in, all, you know, Vanguard and all these, it, it would wind up to be one percent of the total. And again, that's just, you know, that's what we see from the wealth gap. The, you know, no matter where you look, it's the top one percent, it's the top five percent, it's the top ten percent of income earners that have 
you know, basically all the wealth and they own 90% of the stock market. So, you know, it, it's, you know, when you start wanting to, to increase access and give people more incentive to save, I think it's a great thing. I'm all for it, right? But if you really wanted to fix the retirement savings plan, just simply remove all the barriers, yeah. right? Save I as agree. much as you want, put as much as you want in your IRA. Look, people still have to live. They can't put their entire paycheck into an IRA, <laughs> you know? So you're still going to get some tax money. Don't worry. Um, if they're doing the Roth IRA, you're going to your tax money now. But take on, why, why 5000 a year, 6000 a year, whatever it is? Why not put as much as you want in there? Let's help America save money. Put as much as you want in your 401k plan. Who cares? You see, people still got to live, right? They're going to take some money home, but remove the barriers and let people start saving more. I, I 100% agree with that. And I think that you and I have talked about this before, Lance, about with this great resignation and a lot of people moving on. I still believe there's only about uh, 20%, 30% of Americans that are actually covered by an employer-sponsored 401k plan. And a lot of that has to do with barriers to entry. A lot of it has to do with confusion around how do I start this? How do we design this? And I think the value that we can provide here at RIA Advisors is to inspire business owners to understand that the cost to get something started and maintained is actually quite low once we take into account all the tax credits that you, you know, Congress and the government has kind of come out with since the Secure Act of 2019. Most of the time, I just quoted a plan last week. Startup cost to them after tax was thirteen hundred dollars. You know, right. it's not it's it's not as big of a barrier uh, to get something started and have more control over what you want to offer your employees. Um, the bigger extent or uh, bigger issue that the government's trying to solve again is just increased access. But I think small businesses can easily do that within their own. Uh, within their own organizations um, for a pretty low cost and they have more control. Yeah, so. no, it, and, and you're right. I mean, when you take a look at all the companies that are out there, small businesses, mid-sized businesses, large businesses, only 50% of them actually have 401k plans that they offer. I mean, and then the other part is, is not just the offering of the plan, it's actually getting the participation yeah. uh, in the plans. And, and this goes back to people not wanting to say, not, I shouldn't say they don't want to say, everybody wants, psychologically wants to save money. They just can't figure out that they can. And so out of all the plans that are out there, only 25% of the people that have access to plan, or 50% of the people or 25% of the total actually contribute to 401k plans. So it's a very small number of the total um, of all the workers that are out there. But again, what are some of the common reasons people don't save money? It's like, well, I can't really afford to. And what people don't, but this is a lack of education because since you're saving money to your 401k plan pre-tax, assuming it's not a Roth plan, right? So you're just a regular 401k plan. When you put money in pre-tax, you can save money in your plan and basically bring home the same amount of money because, you know, you're putting money away before you even pay income taxes. So it lowers your income taxes. You've got to pay on money. But this is just something that we don't, you know, employers don't do a good job educating with. This is something advisors don't do a good job about educating about. And, and look, and we just don't, and we talked about this yesterday on the show, we don't provide good financial education for anybody. No, I think I think a, a standard economics class in high school is still about talking about market theory and things like that when we should be talking about how to save delayed gratification, compound interest being the eighth wonder of the world. All these financial concepts that add real value to someone's life. I mean, that's what we should be talking about. Lance, right. so I 100% agree with you. So um, with that said, I would I would also add that um, employers I know are in a really tough spot. They're wearing multiple hats. And so I think one of the things that, you know, we always talk about here at RA Advisors, is how can we partner with you and really kind of supercharge this conversation and financial literacy within your organization, helps bring financial peace of mind, helps solve the problem. And a bigger, uh, a bigger solution is how do we keep the government out of getting involved in the benefits that you want to offer uh, your employees and attract and retain talent. So 
All good points, Lance. I agree. Yep. Danny? Well, I think you both hit the nail on the head. It's it's a lack of education surrounding this that I think that is really stifling the, the growth of this industry and what we really need. And, you know, that's where the government, unfortunately, will jump in. And, you know, Tom, you mentioned, and I don't want to discount this at all because I think it's extremely important. Most employers are overwhelmed, you know, just trying to run a business now trying to actually come out and determine what type of plan is best for them. And I think that's where, you know, having a good fiduciary advisor who can step in can really, really pay off and really help to kind of really steer that conversation, make sure people really understand exactly what they're getting and what they need. And you mentioned $1,300 to start a plan. Guess what? That's a deduction. That's an expense that you're going to be able to write off here as a business owner. Um, And then, you know, many people have a plan already. That's an old plan. I mean, how many plans do you see on a regular basis, Tom? that need major changes that are probably out of uh they're out of the regulatory aspect because we continue to see changes and and laws change within this industry yet the old plan has never had their their uh, advisors never had that communication with them saying hey guys we probably need to make a we need to switch gears here um how often do you see that i think that's probably more often than most people think the, the bigger issue is just going back to education, just letting employers know that this is something that we can easily take care of, that you can set up, that can be maintained, and that for the most part, it doesn't have to become priority number one for your organization. I 100% agree with you, Danny. So, well, and not only that, but then going further and educating the participants, I think is huge because like Lance said, so many people think, well, oh man, I can't afford to put funds aside. I, I can make the argument that you can't afford not to. And so really making sure that people understand that, I think you'd see plan utilization go way up. You'd see a lot more people actually using it, having a better understanding. But look, markets can be scary for somebody who's never invested. You see a lot of moving parts. Um, You know, nobody wants to lose any money. And so, you know, but most people fail to forget that their human capital, what they're putting aside is typically going to do way more than what the market's going to do. And having somebody an advisor who can help guide them in this conversation and make sure that you go in on an annual basis at minimum and having that resource, I think is huge. And employers need to understand that it's not just about putting that plan together, but it's also about having somebody who's going to be there to help counsel and guide their participants. So you do see more people use it. Well, I know, but you know, one of the big problems for employers, of course, also that they're concerned about is they're concerned about lawsuits they're concerned about, you know, complaints. And, and now we're seeing a whole variety of new kind of, innovations you know people trying to stick bitcoin into 401k plans and the you know applying these esg scams into you know 401k plans as well you know the 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 biggest problem already is just there's an overwhelming number of choices in these in these programs to choose from and again most people don't have time or the access to information to analyze each one of the mutual fund options they have etc so forth and trying to make the right decisions and now you're going to include stuff in here that is super speculative and you know employers are worried that if employee if if employees lose 50 percent of their money they're going to get sued for it yeah no i think I, i saw a recent report out on social media funny enough that most uh employees participants americans are getting most of their financial advice from social media, Lance. And I'm and I'm sure you know how like that could be a vast, a wide range of different opinions. So yeah, I think I, I was on a, a participant call with uh, Connie and we talked a lot about just signing up for your newsletter, Lance. That should do it. So <laughs> that's what we joked about. So that's your financial literacy. Yeah, be right yeah. back after the break. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Daniel Ratliff, Tom Allen joined me this morning. Be right back. 
I want to pick up on that ESG conversation we were just talking about a second ago because, again, this is something that, you know, all these 401k plans are in a rush to try to get ESG plans into their 401k plans because this is obviously the way that uh, everybody wants to go. Uh, we've written about this numerous. First of all, let's explain how ESG works. So in, environmental social governance, right, is supposed to be some set of criteria that companies are following to be classified as ESG. The problem is, is there's no classifications for it, right? There's no standard. There's no standardization of metrics that, you know, classify me as an ESG company versus a non-ESG company. We just kind of arbitrarily pick one. So what's not an ESG company? Oh, ExxonMobil, because they drill for oil, right? Must be. Um, who is ESG? Uh, Apple, because they don't do that. Well, uh, not really the case. If you go to go to China and see where they actually manufacture, you know, iPhones, not so ESG compliant. <laughs> you know, so again, it's more of just how we feel about it. And more importantly, since there's no real guidelines for this, what we're seeing is is a vast number of mutual funds and uh, exchange traded funds, et cetera, that had no had no inflows of capital. They had kind of gone to the wayside. They weren't very popular. All they're doing is changing their name to the ESG fund, right? So they're just simply sticking ESG into their name somewhere, and all of a sudden they're getting all these inflows of capital. Did they change any of their holdings? No. Did they raise their fee? Yeah, they doubled it in a lot of cases. So what's happening with ESG funds is simply this is the Great Wall Street scam of 2021, which is to tell you it's ESG. They double the rate of expenses that you pay for it because this has been one of the big challenges for Wall Street is how to extract more fees from, from users because this fee compression has been now going on for two decades. And, you know, everybody's trying to push down the lowest fee, free trading, free commissions, lowest fee ETFs, whatever it is, everybody's trying to get down to the lowest amount. And so now with ESG, all of a sudden, Wall Street figured out, it's like, hey, we can charge people more to be socially and government uh, government compliant, right? So, but but this is the whole kind of fallacy behind the whole thing. Let's, let's take an example. And uh, this is a real life example, by the way. So a coal mine shuts down for 99 years, okay? They then get carbon credits for being shut down from the government, which they can then sell to another coal mine who's producing like crazy. And let's assume this other coal mine is the nastiest, dirtiest, most environmentally destructive coal mine. It's not doing clean coal like we do now. It's the old-fashioned coal mining, right? We're just doing it the worst possible way. Well, they're obviously contributing to climate change, right? They're certainly not ESG compliant. Well, all you have to do is buy the carbon credits from the coal mine that shut down, which gives the shutdown coal mine a tremendous amount of income for not mining, and now the, the worst disastrous coal mine mining manufacturer in the world now has a zero carbon footprint because of the carbon mining credits that they purchased. Now, how is that environmentally, socially, or government, you know, conscious, right? It's not, right? It's not. It's just, it's, it's, this is the whole scam though, right? Um, you know, if you really want to look at who's polluting the country, go look at China, India, and Indonesia. I mean, you know, there's your there's your climate change disruptors right there. I mean, they are just absolutely pumping out carbon like crazy. But this is the 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 whole premise of wanting to sell product, and all I got to do is find what is in. Right. This is this is all about advertising and marketing. It's not about giving you the better investments. It's not about actually doing anything for the government. In fact, there was a recent article just out that said ESG may ESG investing may do more to reverse the whole progress towards climate change 
uh, fixing climate change than it actually contributes to. So, you know, this is the problem we have. And and instead of doing the analysis, instead of doing the research, we buy into themes or structures. And look, we've had these themes for years. Back in the 1990s, we had, you know, it was sin stocks, right? We had all kinds of funds come out. Oh, yeah, we don't invest in sin stocks. You know what were the best performing stocks during that period of time? <laughs> Send stocks. You got it. Um, and and now you look at, uh, you know, companies like ExxonMobil and Chevron, right? These are some of the lowest, these some of the best valued companies in the markets right now. If you were uh, an investor, these are the companies you want to be buying. I mean, buy ExxonMobil right now with almost a 7% yield on it. Why wouldn't you buy it? Oh, I know it's not ESG compliant. It's about your money. <laughs> you know, invest for growing your money and creating an income to live on. Leave all the other social stuff where it belongs, which is in your social drawer over there somewhere and enjoy that. So anyway, but this, this is the whole problem. And now, of course, though, this is a big push by 401k plans as well as mutual funds, et cetera, is to get ESG funds into 401k plans. Why? So that you'll buy them and pay a higher fee for them. Tom? Uh, of course. No, what I was going to add was that Lance hit on such an important point is that when you get into ESG, we're, we're moving away from objective financial principles and moving into what I call flavors of the week. So <laughs> I've, I, I talked to a business owner with like, oh, we're really looking at this fund. And I looked at it and basically it's a to your point, Lance, it's a uh, it's an overcharged access to FANG. Like you're just getting a concentrated tech portfolio. But because of what you prefer when it comes to ESG, now all of a sudden you're, um, you are having your participants be in a concentrated portfolio, which, I mean, you could speak to at length, Lance. It's like, this isn't in someone's financial best interest over the long term. The funny thing, and I 100% agree with you, is that this social drawer that you speak of, it's like you can, you can still get involved in, these, in these, um, these initiatives in other ways when it comes to your money. Let's stick with prudent financial principles. And I, I always tell employers to do the exact same thing when it comes to thinking about your investment lineup. Let's yeah. keep finances, finances, and get involved in social activities, other means, you know, yeah. volunteering, donating, whatever it is. Yeah. Danny? Oh, but, but net zero, Lance, I mean, that's, it's, it's the big thing. I mean, if you look at BlackRock, it's all over their website. And you're right. If you look inside, the, you, you look under the hood, those investments, even their S&P 500 sustainable ESG investment fund, looks like the S&P 500 mm -hmm. and the returns are just like the S&P 500. So it doesn't always mean that you're going to get something completely different or you're going to get something that's going to be um, better per se. I mean, I would challenge anybody listening right now to go through and look at each one of these investments and think real hard about how they make money and where they make it, where they make their product. They do like you mentioned, Apple in China. Um, go look at the top 10 investments for any of these guys. And you may feel a little bit differently about ESG investing and you may start to understand, you know, how this propaganda wheel began to turn in regard to, you know, trying to sell something that, hey, this is really noble. You should be doing this. But is it really? I don't know. Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's an interesting point you bring up. And I did a research article. If you actually go to our uh, website, realinvestmentadvice.com, and just type in ESG in the search bar, you'll come up with an article we wrote recently called The Great Wall Street Money Heist, um, which is talking about BlackRock specifically. And, you know, I actually did an analysis. I took one of their, the BlackRock ESG funds and compared it to the S&P. The correlation of returns for those two funds is nearly 100%. So, I mean, it's, <laughs> they are identical. And then I drilled down at the top 10 holdings. The top 10 holdings between the S&P 500 and the BlackRock ESG fund are identical, except for one. What was the one stock that was different? 
Now, here's the question. If I'm a if I'm a publicly traded company, what makes my stock price go up? People buying my stock, right? I need people to buy my stock that keeps my stock price elevated. As a CEO of the country uh, of the company, uh, you know, Larry Fink, um, how do I get compensated? I get compensated from my stock options and all my stock ownership that I have in the company, right? So if I really am believe, if I'm a huge believer in ESG, right, what could I do to really enhance my own personal net worth? You know what was the one company that was different between the S&P 500 and the BlackRock ESG fund? Want to take a guess, Danny? What's that? Who was it? You, don't, you just want to take a shot? The main difference, I don't know, was it ExxonMobil? No. The main difference was the only difference between the top 10 holdings was that BlackRock was number three in the holdings. Ah, <laughs> uh, so, hey, that's genius. So, yeah. Now, so you, do they you, require disclosures? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm sure, there's, I'm sure there's a disclosure buried way down on page 963 of the uh, disclosure document that you get. But, yeah, so they put their own company in the top 10 holdings. So every time you buy the fund which is great. And by the way, the S&P charges you about 25 bips. You know, a Vanguard S&P index will charge you about 25 bips on their ETF. Uh, the BlackRock ESG fund was over 1%. So, you know, you know, it's you, you pay a lot for it. And every time somebody gets a dollar into it, basically about, you know, 15, 16 cents of every dollar is going into BlackRock's own stock. Now, you know, seems completely legitimate on the surface until you start to think about it, right? Who who are you really benefiting? Are you benefiting you? Are you really benefiting the environment? Or are you benefiting the people that are putting out these funds? And again, to, to Tom, as I, I was just saying, this is why, and what Tom said, you know, there are plenty of ways. If you want to be a social justice warrior, you'll be a climate change warrior, whatever you want to do, tons of ways to go do that. Go enjoy yourself and do it. Don't tie your money up into it. Investing in companies just because you think they're ESG they're really not. And, and and again, there's no metrics for it. So how do you even know what ESG is? Yeah, 100% agree. And I, what I just want to remind employers from a fiduciary perspective, keep it to sound financial principles, make sure we're diversified, make sure we have we have eyes on expenses to Lance's point paying 1% for S&P access is absolutely insane. Um, so let's just let's just keep it to what we're trying to do, which is help Americans save for retirement and grow in the most financially sound way we know. And the other, similarly, Lance, I think another kind of trend right now, similar to ESG, is Bitcoin. And maybe we'll tackle that one. We'll tackle that one in the next section. Yeah, we'll be right back after the break. We'll talk about that some more. Finish up the show. Don't go away. The House Ways and Means Committee is actually coming out with some new legislation to limit Roth conversions, to limit where you can actually put funds. And, you know, we may be seeing the Roth go away. You touched on this a little bit earlier in the sense that, you know, we do have limitations as far as who can invest in a Roth at the moment, at least make new contributions. You can always do a Roth conversion. Those limitations from an income perspective have disappeared. But what we're going to see very likely is that they're going to do away with this altogether and make some major changes, Lance. And this is going to become problematic for people trying to save yeah, I in just, other areas. I just, just wanted to uh, remind Mr. Ratliff, uh, about two years ago, I made the comment here on the show with him and Richard that, you know, Roth IRAs would certainly be an easy thing to get rid of to collect a lot of tax dollars, and they ridiculed me at the time for it. So just wanted to remind Mr. Ratliff of that little point. But isn't that counterintuitive? Because if you're putting funds into a Roth IRA, you're getting the government's getting money. They're getting taxed right away. 
There's just, yeah. You think you'd want that. You think you would want it, but again, it's just, uh, you know, again, you know, what the government wants is they're trying to figure out, look, they're trying to raise taxes on everybody right now. I mean, that's the whole thing. We've got to figure out a way to pay for it. And this is the big challenge of this whole debt ceiling debate is even Joe Manchin is starting to stand back against this debt ceiling and this $3.5 trillion in spending and, you know, how are you going to pay for it? Even Joe Manchin says, hey, you've got to come with a way to pay. You want to do this $3.5 trillion? That's fine. I'll vote for it. But you've got to show me how you're going to pay for it outside of just raising taxes, right? And this is and this is kind of the key point. You know, we just continue to spend and spend and spend without, you know, you know, finding a way to pay for these things. And the easiest thing to go after now are things like estate taxes, IRAs, Roth IRAs, you know, remove these these tax benefits for people. Uh, because they think they're only attacking the rich people. And, you know, unfortunately, they're not. They're actually making it worse. You know, we talked about the statistics earlier on the show. 25% of people, you know, um, contribute to 401k plans. You know, average savings in retirement accounts is about thirty-five to fifty to $60,000, you know, across various account types. You know, it's about one year's worth of income. People simply just can't afford to save. And now you're going to remove their only ability to save and maybe shelter a few dollars for the future. I mean, the short-sightedness is really bad in Washington. Well, it's going to pay for their 2022 budget is essentially what they're looking for over a 10-year time frame. And, you know, you start thinking about the the limitations of what you can actually contribute to a, a, a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA for that matter. I mean, we're talking about for most people, this is a month, maybe two months of living. You're allowing them to contribute that for a full year. Right. Let's think about that. I mean, <laughs> shouldn't we shouldn't we open that up? Why, why have such such small limitations on these things? And, you know, that's the frustrating part about this whole thing. One, it's very counterintuitive. The hypocrisy of it all is is just mind blowing to me. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, the limitations that we're actually allowed to do who can live off of that. Not everybody has a big a big pension like most of these congressmen. Yeah. Well, no, and look, this, look, what do we have going on right now of importance, right? We have Social Security facing bankruptcy in 2026 and, you know, cuts to Social Security benefits. We have too many people drawing. We have about 78 million boomers going into retirement over the next 10 years and too much, too many people drawing off a, a system that too few people contribute to. So, we should be thinking down the road going, hey, we know we're going to have to cut benefits to Social Security at some point. We know we're going to have to change, you know, uh, retirement ages and do different things to reduce that drag on that welfare system. So let's, you know, let's get people saving for themselves. As you said, let's open those things up. Save as much as you can possibly put as much away. as If you could put 100 percent of your salary in your 401k plan and live on rice and beans, you go for it. That's, you know, you do the Dave Ramsey plan. Live like nobody else today so you live like nobody else tomorrow. Good for you. You're less of a drag on Social Security. And then you can say you can do some means testing for Social Security. If you got $5 million in a, in a 401k plan, you get your Social Security benefits cut by 50% or whatever, right? You could do that. But allow people to start saving more for their own retirement. Give them incentives to do so. You know, but we don't think about that. We just think about how much more debt we can issue and how much more spending we can do today. We want to give people more money. You know, we want to give people $2,000 a month in money um, because we think that's going to be the answer. But taking money from somebody else to give to somebody else doesn't create better outcomes. Oh, no, it's not going to create any better outcomes, unfortunately. And, you know, where this all ends, who knows, but they're taking more and more of these things away. And Lance, you just scared probably half of the listeners right now. Social Security is not going to go bankrupt in 2026, okay? 
We can go all the way till 2034, 2035. 34, 35. Sorry. Sorry. I got my years wrong. So hold on, hold on. And (laughs) bankrupt. Everybody thinks like, oh my gosh, nobody's going to be paid. Yes, you're going to be paid, but you're going to have a reduction in benefits. It's not going to be, it's not the same thing. Yeah. No, it's not going to zero. You just won't get as much. And then it'll eventually go to zero. But But there's too many people that rely on Social Security. If you look at the numbers, they're going to have to do something with it. Now, maybe it's that $2,000 income you were discussing. I don't know. But something will be done along those lines. You know, Rich and I talk about if you go to the American Actuary Society, they actually have a game called Social Security Game. And you can go there and fix it in about two minutes. I encourage you to send each one of your congressmen and women to go look at this because it'll drive you nuts when you do it so quickly. It's really an easy it's an easy fix. Just nobody wants to do it. Yeah. No, it, 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 again, because it comes back to, look, we shouldn't be in this problem with Social Security to start with. You know, um, when Bill Clinton, you know, balanced the budget, he did it by borrowing $2 trillion from Social Security. That started the whole waterfall. Um, we shouldn't be here. Um, this this should have been a problem that's been solved over the last, you know, 30, 40 years. We also keep putting more and more things into Social Security that have no business being there. Um, you know, we're, you know, we're giving money out to children and, uh, you know, people that come here from other countries and, you know, anybody that, that has a problem, we stick them on Social Security in some shape, form or fashion. That's not what Social Security was meant for. Um, but again, we keep doing these things. It's an easy pot of money to go to. And it's one hundred and seventy trillion dollar unfunded liability. There's no way you're ever going to fix that problem until you start making some changes. And unfortunately, you have two outcomes. Either you make some changes now and you can work your way into a better situation, or eventually the situation will make the changes for you. And that's the most brutal of fashions, which we don't want. And unfortunately, that's likely what will happen because most politicians don't want to address it's not that issue that's very electable. I mean, think about this. You're gonna tell half the population that, oh, by the way, you're not gonna be able to take social security your full retirement age is not going to be 67. It's going to be 68 now. Or we're going to be taxing more of your your paycheck, which I think is very likely. I think those are things that we're, yeah. we'll likely see you know, probably sooner rather than later. And I would hope they'd address that now versus kicking that can down the road. Get these things, you know, give people a little bit of peace of mind and fix the problem while you can. Like you said, instead of making that problem, fix it for you. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, a couple of things here this morning. Uh, markets are going to try to open up a little bit question is whether or not they'll be able to hold these gains for today. There's still a lot of kind of selling pressure in the market, still concerns right now over this whole debt ceiling debate. Will they, won't they? Yes, they will raise the debt ceiling. Like Danny said, you will get Social Security and they will raise the debt ceiling. It's, you know, we've done it 78, 79 times now since uh, we started this whole process. So eventually this will get passed when it does. A lot of this angst will go out of the markets. The The bigger concern, of course, for markets over the next few months is going to be the Fed, what they do in terms of taper. That's something we'll talk about tomorrow with Michael Leibowitz when he comes on the show as well. But again, you know, there's there's a lot of things going on in Washington right now. And that is certainly all kinds of weighing on markets and money. And, of course, outcomes that we're talking about here, um, you know, this whole spending bill that's trying to get shoved through this three and a half trillion plus one point two trillion plus another three or four trillion just to fund the government. This is going to be a massive increase in debt. This is something that we've all got to pay for eventually. And this is the one thing we that, you know, we don't really think about to any great degree. And this is one of the big fallacies with modern monetary theory, theory which says deficits don't matter. They're, they use an accounting game that says, well, you know, the debt of the government is somebody else's asset. That's true, right? We issue debt. Somebody owns that asset. 
the problem is, is that it's taxpayers that are paying for that asset. And who are we paying for that asset? Well, a lot of foreigners own our bonds. China, India, Norway, Germany, they own our bonds. So our taxpayer pays those interest payments and that principal ultimately on the debt. They come from tax dollars. It doesn't come from just magic money out of the air. So deficits do matter because deficits deter money from productive investments. Instead of spending money, building out property, plant, and equipment, creating jobs, what are we doing? We're paying interest on debt. We're paying principal on debt. That money doesn't come back. It once it's gone, it goes away. It doesn't come back. And so this is the thing that we kind of forget about debt. And yes, you know, this idea of giving more people more money sounds great, fantastic, no problem with that at all. And as we talked about yesterday, it lasts for one year. And then inflation takes away the benefit. And everything adjusts for higher prices and more capital. And we're right back in the same soup that we're in today with even more debt. So we'll resolve the debt ceiling this week. Maybe next week we'll get there. Uh, we'll keep you updated here on the show. Get by the website. Our latest daily commentary is out talking about the market decline yesterday, what to expect next. We'll have three minutes of markets and money out here shortly. And of course, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on the events tab and get registered for the upcoming uh, Lunch and Learn tomorrow with Tom Allen and Danny Ratliff. We'll see you then on the next show, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's